that's the innate immunity that our bodies were designed to develop. But we, I think, are forgo- foregoing that in the name of vaccines in current day. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Uncommon Podcast with B-Pop and Duff. Duff, what, what's up, buddy? Nothing much, my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Well, hey, before we get kicked off, as we do every episode, we want to send a special thank you and shout out to all the first responders out there. Police, firefighters, EMTs, and we've extended this out in the last few episodes. We want to um, also include frontline workers in that. So doctors, nurses, CNAs, all that sort of stuff. Everybody's kind of under attack right now with the vax mandates and all that sort of stuff. So we just want to let you all know that we still appreciate you. We still thank you for everything that you do, uh, even today. And then also, we definitely do not want to forget about our active duty military and our veterans that serve this great country. Without everything you do, we cannot do what we do. So from the bottom of our hearts, we thank you so much for all you sacrifice. Absolutely. And we say it every time on the show, but if you have a cause that we can get involved with, we want to be involved with that. So please reach out to us and let us know what you're involved with. Perfect. So without further ado, we've been wanting to do this episode for quite some time. We always want to bring people in that, you know, have firsthand knowledge. So we have two registered nurses with us. So introduce Liz, introduce Brianna. So thank you guys for coming in. Thanks Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't we just kind of take a couple minutes and just kind of share kind of your area of expertise, your background, things like that. So let's start with you, Liz, and then we'll go to Brianna. Um, I have been in nursing since 2006, um, so however many years that is, a lot of years now, 15 years. years. Um, I've been a registered nurse in the neonatal intensive care unit and recently graduated with my doctorate um, and I'm a nurse practitioner. So real quick, as a nurse practitioner, um, how's that different from an RN? So you have the ability to prescribe medications and things like that, correct? Yeah, you you operate in the same vein as a neonatologist or a physician. So we do all of the things that they do, manage patient care, manage medications, and just take care of the overall planning, care planning for the patient. Okay. Yeah. Great. And how about you, Brianna? So I've been a nurse for five years since 2017. Okay. Um, I started out on a med surge floor, so I worked with adults and I got all the good stuff. It was kind of a catch-all floor and that's where I started out as a new grad. And then two years ago, I moved into a NICU role and that's where I've been and been loving it. Great. What brought you guys into nursing to begin with? I guess what was kind of like the passion to say, okay, I want to get into helping people and get into nursing overall? Uh, Yeah, I think back when I decided to go to nursing school, I had first gotten a a degree, a bachelor's from A&M in community health, and they didn't have a nursing program at the college. I was at the university. So I graduated and then went to nursing school. And I knew probably two to three years into my original degree that I just wanted to be more active with patient care um, and less involved with research and sitting at a desk. For me, it was really a calling on my life. I felt called to care for patients in whatever capacity. And I kind of stumbled on the NICU, but loved the NICU, uh, the environment, the patients, the parents and everything about it. But yeah, it was, I would definitely say for me, it was a calling to care for patients. Sure. I think for me, it was, you know, I was a stay at home mom. My husband was in the military. Um, he was establishing his career then as a police officer. And so 
I thought, hey, I want to give back too. Like, I don't want to see him go out and do all this stuff. And I'm sitting home caring for kids. Not like that's a bad thing, but I decided to become a nurse. I was a CNA first and I worked with a bunch of elderly Alzheimer's patients and that was great, but I wanted to do more. So then I went to nursing school and it's just the level of care for people, you know. Your family like checks all the boxes of all the thank yous that we do at the beginning of the show. seems like. That's why we listen. <laughs> right. Well, thank you for listening. Thanks for tuning in on that. You worked with Alzheimer's people. Let me ask you this real quick, because it's not going to go into what we're talking about overall, but we dealt with somebody with dementia and Alzheimer's in, a, in our family, you know, re- most recently and something that happened, obviously he lost control over his bowels and stuff. And I've suspected, right. You don't have to agree with me or disagree with me, but I would say that like that happening to Biden overseas, like some of this dementia stuff is starting to kind of, the dots are coming together. Would you say at all? Yeah, possibly. (laughs) And I'm not saying it is or isn't right, but I'm just saying like, Hey, he has problems like remembering shit. And now he's, you know, we're having these other issues and now you can't hold your bottles. Like that's not a little bit of incontinence going on there. Right. Yeah. So I want to take you guys back to the beginning of COVID. Um, you know, there were so many unknowns and we've talked about several episodes on this podcast about, you know, where we were conflicted at and where, you know, what do you believe the information that was coming at you? I mean, at the beginning you go back and you really think about it and it was like all of the stuff that we know now is like, was just hidden and, you know, just kind of scraped aside. I mean, just going back to the beginning of the pandemic, I mean, what were things like for you guys on a daily basis? You know what I mean? Like, I don't think enough people have really talked to you about like what a day was. Um, okay. I'll take that first. Uh, so I remember very much being scared because there was so much unknown about this disease and what it was going to do and what the infection rate was going to look like and the case fatality rate and all, all of the things Nobody knew COVID, you know, nobody came out and said, oh, it's a respiratory virus that's similar to RSV that we see in, in our population, but in adults and it spreads really quickly. It, it, there was so much unknown, I think, that at that point in time, we were willing to kind of take on and do whatever was asked of us um, as far as healthcare workers went. I never for myself felt super scared, but I felt at least for maybe a week's time, I felt like there was a lot of unknown. And so when they said PPE, wear everything, when they said you have to carry your little paper saying you're an essential worker to get to work, you know, we complied and we did all of the things because, you know, there was a lot unknown about it and you didn't want to uh, buck the system because you had no idea what you were bucking against. So I think the initial phase of it was a lot of fear, a lot of unknown, a lot of what is this really going to look like. But after, you know, a few weeks to a month or two, when things kind of settled out and you saw the numbers do what they were going to do and you saw what the virus actually looked like, the fear lessened at that point in time. Obviously, it wasn't nearly as scary as as what it could have been with the case fatality rate. They quoted that we were going to lose 20 million Americans in a year's time and things like that. And that certainly wasn't happening. The dust kind of settled and you started looking at what really the truth was. And I think the truth continued to be suppressed. And um, so I think in the initial phases, it was easy to do what we were told. We were prepped to see the ICUs. Now we work with babies. And so we didn't really see anything change in our line of work at all, except for our numbers dwindled for probably six to six months, eight months or so in in our setting, um, which was scary. Nurses were not getting shifts and 
you know, we're told all of this fear mongering about this is the worst crisis and the ICUs certainly were full. Um, but, and we had plan B's and, and we had adults on our floor to kind of help mitigate the numbers upstairs in the ICU. We have a new build in our unit and we had adults in that new build before we had babies in the new build, but you know, you do what you got to do. Cause I just, did they, did, real quick, did they ever have you guys have to work in another part of the hospital or another floor to kind of fill in during kind of the peak of, or the early peak of, you know, back probably what, April, May of 2020? Yeah. So I actually floated up to the medical floor um, because I was fresh out of that. My actual floor that I came from, from another hospital was the COVID floor. So I got out of that floor just in time, really. So I was asked to cross train and go up and be a CNA on a different floor. And, you know, I was called to do that. That's what they said. You know, we need you somewhere else. And the selfish part of me was like, I just got this cush job in the NICU. I don't want to move. I don't want to go put myself at risk because then I'm going to expose my kids, my mom who's immunosuppressed. I didn't want to do that. I did go ahead and go a couple of times, but yeah, so we were asked to do that. And a lot of nurses who hadn't worked with adults in the NICU, they were like, I don't want to do this. What I want to be a secretary, like, do not make me be a nurse right now. I'm not going to do it. So yeah, it was definitely asked of us. And some of us went, some of us didn't like it, but that was the answer, the call for us. So at the very early stage, and I was talking to a, uh, an ER physician, um, and I won't say what hospital she was working at, but what she indicated to me, and you guys can tell me, and I totally might be misinterpreting this completely, but what she told me was at the very early stages of COVID, because there were so many unknowns, when somebody would go into the ER and they couldn't breathe and they would be put on a vent, a lot of times they were put on a ventilator too quickly. Um, but in addition, I guess there's this real technical mathematical equation based on weight, height, age, body mass, all that sort of stuff to figure out how to properly uh, vent a person as far as like the capacity, probably the wrong word, but how much air to put in them. And she basically told me, and I'm going to butcher this when I say this, but she basically said in a roundabout way that early on they were over inflating people, so to speak, meaning they were pushing too much air into them and their lungs couldn't handle it because they didn't know they were treating it kind of like a pneumonia. Whereas COVID is very different from pneumonia. Is that, is that a fair assessment of how that was going? Yes. Um, so all fairness, this comes just from my own research and reading and talking and listening to a lot of people who treat adults, our RTs in our world, I think have seen this and that's who I have spoken with probably the most to ground myself on what is really going on. But yes, to answer your question, I think that the way that the disease process was treated early on was under the impression that it was a typical bacterial pneumonia or viral pneumonia like they've seen before. And so you have with adults, you have ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, and that prompts kind of what you were talking about, an algorithm per se, to decide on what kind of respiratory support to give a patient and when to intubate and when to put them on a ventilator. And as you all remember, in the early days, February, March, and April, the big concern and fear was that we were not going to have enough ventilators to ventilate all the patients in America. And so the big focus at that point in time was to get vents to every hospital, stat, stat, stat. And 
that's because I think they didn't know what COVID was doing in the lungs um, and to the lungs. And so they were treating it like a typical ARDS or pneumonia. But it, they found that I think the process that leads to patients needing respiratory support and going into respiratory failure is more related to a clotting problem and, and microvasculature clotting that goes on in the lungs which is inflammation. And yes, do some of those patients need to be ventilated when they're in, in such respiratory failure? Yes. But I think um, typically for adults, when their oxygen saturations are below a certain percentage, that's kind of what prompts them to ventilate them if they're not oxygenating. But with this disease process, the inflammation and the microclotting that goes on I think patients can tolerate much lower oxygen saturations than typically a normal pneumonia or a normal ARDS patient would would tolerate. And so they've learned a lot through the year and a half, two years, and they certainly don't vent patients right away like they were doing at the beginning. I mean, when we were talking to our respiratory therapist who were working with these patients directly, they were tubing any patient who came through the ED pretty much um, in respiratory failure and with oxygen saturations below 90%. And now I think it's a totally different ballgame. That and asking patients to not come flood the hospital system until they can't breathe and are so, so short of breath, I don't think we're doing that now, although I don't know what... I, I think the FDA and CDC are still recommending take Tylenol and stay at home. I don't think there's a lot of treatment that is still recommended by physicians outpatient before they were, would get ill and maybe need hospitalization. Um, but definitely once they're in the hospital now, they're not treating them the same way they were in February, March, and April. But correct me if I'm wrong, but what I know that there was like a $36,000 per positive COVID case that got admitted to a hospital. Like there was some sort of like incentive structure. Wasn't there an incentive structure also with the ventilators? Like if you got put on a ventilator, then that was like another it was like almost like an add-on that the government that was given there for a while. Cause I, from just what I had heard and what I'd read, right. You guys worked in the field, so I don't know you. That's why I'm asking, but I just felt like it, it created a big issue when you start involving money with health. And I mean, when you say, okay, you get a COVID case, he comes into your hospital, you get an extra $36,000. Well, we all know, at least when I was a police officer being in the hospitals all the time, 50 to 60% of these people don't pay their bill. I mean, and you get illegal aliens or anything that come into there and they go get a different ID card and you can't ever track them. And I mean, so I understand why the business of hospitals operates how it does, but just, I'd like to get your opinion on if you feel that during that time when there was an incentive to, you know, count a case as COVID or, you know, count a case and say, oh man, you're, you're a lot worse, you know, cause I've, I've heard stories also of where people were like, I was still talking and they were pushing to put me on a ventilator and come to find out later on, it's over 80% mortality rate once you get put on one of those things. So I just wanted to pick your guys' brains about, you know, what that, what that looked like at that time. I think for that aspect, I think it too was like the fear of the unknown, you know, you're sitting there not knowing what you're actually dealing with. And when I've had patients go into AR, like ARDS and it's awful. And they can't breathe. And it's split second decision of we need to save your life. And yeah, this vent's going to save your life. You know, um, I know when we do our practices, I'm not money driven whatsoever. You know, 
Um, well, you're not. The hospital uh, right. admin and, might be. And but. maybe the docs or whoever behind it. But I'm a nurse in your room thinking, I'm going to lose your airway. That's the first thing you, you do is you say, okay, we're going to vent you. So money-wise, not sure. But I know that when it happens in adults, babies, we have more time. But adults, when it goes, it goes. And so I think the fear of the unknown at first and how to treat that was huge. So that's why you saw so many events. I want to go back to something you said a minute ago. You, you said microclotting. So the physician that I was talking to said that COVID was almost like a bunch of tiny blood clots filling up the, the air sacs mm-hmm. in the lung. Is that, is that a correct way to yeah, interpret that, it? My understanding of what happens when people develop severe respiratory disease from COVID is the clotting is the problem. The, the microclots in the lungs that block the ability of your tiny little airways to ventilate and perfuse appropriately. And so that's why you have what's called a VQ mismatch where your ability to ventilate and then perfuse your body is mismatched because there's something in the way, a clot um, in this instance, that's inhibiting that. That coupled with the inflammation that I think the virus and maybe the spike protein with the virus and the microclots cause a lot of inflammation is what I think we saw early on led to a lot of respiratory distress. But that's not typical for a pneumonia or a typical virus. That's not the same process. Usually it's pulmonary edema, which is fluid in the lungs that lead to our ARDS and and pneumonia associated with viruses or bacteria um, that that you're treating. And so it's just very different. So that's got to be why I hear a lot of people saying COVID (laughs) is almost more like a vascular disease than a respiratory disease because it causes those blood clots. It causes other issues uh, with the heart and things like that. Yes, that's my understanding. Reading now much smarter people who've done a lot more work in the field, um, cardiologists and, and, and people who see these patients and are treating them before they get so bad. That's my understanding of what leads to the the spiral out of control for COVID. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> as far, so March of 2020 to August of 2020, whatever, you know, even October, you know, we're all in the public encouraged to howl at the moon for frontline workers, give you all the support that give you all the support we can give you and that sort of thing. And I have no problem with that, but now it, you know, you fast forward to, to what we're dealing with now and it's almost like you are, are expendable. How does that make you feel from a perception from not a perception, but from a position of, you know, we were, we, we were absolutely needed a year and a half ago. We were, you know, revered in our profession. And now it's like, ah, we don't need you. We're going to throw you away. And just, you know, we're going to call a crisis in the hospital and blame it on COVID. But it's really because you fired half your staff. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it, am, I, am I correct in that interpretation? Yeah. And I, I feel it. I feel awful most days that we're, you know, asked to come to work. And if you do not get this injection, you're not going to be able to work. You know, now now with that, I'm glad you brought that up. Quick question. Do you have the ability to choose which uh, brand you want to take? So if you're like, Hey, I'm more comfortable with the Johnson and Johnson rather than the MRNA stuff, I want that. Or do they say, no, this is the only one you can get. No, we definitely have a choice. So I just went to, you know, there's the big vaccine push, you know, 
And so I waited till the very last minute because I have polycystic kidney disease. So I have a disease that there is no studies out there for this shot. And so I was so hesitant. I was so hesitant because how do I know the long-term outcome on my kidneys? Am I going to be in dialysis next week because I got this? So I waited. I did not do the Johnson & Johnson. I went with Pfizer. I did not do the Johnson & Johnson because of the blood clot around it. I thought, okay, I get one blood clot in my kidney. I am going to be on a machine, not being able to do my job anyways then. So we did get the choice to do that. But it was, you know, the howl at the moon. Yay. Let's give you all the food. Like we got so much food. It was crazy. Um, but then more obese nurses now than before. (laughs) There's more obese people in general now than before. Children too. But it's a health crisis. Okay. We'll get into that. I'm sure. But yeah, so it was, it it does, it's sad to see that, you know, now if you do not take this, you can lose your job. And that was my big struggle. You know, I've built a life for myself with my career, my passion that I love. And now I'm being told, you know, we've got a traveler that took the vaccine so they can, you know, come on in and take yours and, you know, go with it. So yeah, it was, it was disheartening. Well, I can imagine totally disheartening. And it's almost like, uh, you're just throwaway. You're, I, if it were me, I would feel like we were just expendable. Yeah. I think, um, there was a moment this year, a few months ago that I literally, and I continue to have the conversation with myself and my husband about, is there anything else I could do? Because I didn't get into this field to, have such, um, I don't know what the word, but just animosity, I think. Distrust. Distrust and animosity and uh, there's infighting. And I, I remember when the vaccine was rolled out and I had not looked into it at that point in time, uh, maybe January, December, January, I think is when they rolled it out to healthcare workers and provided it um, in clinics at, at our at our facility And I had not planned on getting it at that point in time, felt like this was definitely going to be a choice and you were going to be given more time to decide this. This would not be mandated. I was 100% convinced of that. And so um, as it seemed more and more that this was a you have to get this, I started to research more and more both sides of it and made my decision to hold out um, for various reasons. I too have a a previous um, history of pulmonary embolisms uh, related to birth control. So something foreign in my body, they worked me up for all the things and found nothing that coincided with causing that. And I'm just not willing to take a risk. And my husband feels the same way because I was hospitalized with bilateral PEs eight years ago. And that's scary. Um, You can drop dead from that. So when it started to become a mandate and you were really treated like just a number, a cog in the machine, it did feel really bad. It felt like our systems were disowning us and our peers were disowning us. Literally, peers were disowning us. So when you said infighting, or one of you did. So are you talking infighting between um, other nurses and doctors as far as just bickering? Oh, you're not vaxxed. You're you're one of them. Uh, uh, Is that kind of going on in the hospitals right now? Oh, very much so. I got um, 
oh, why are all the police wives not getting it? Um, oh, we can tell who you voted for. Or, you know, it was never your medical situations. It was very much pitting nurses against each other, which is so sad. Uh, well, it's not healthy in an environment where your goal is to save lives. Exactly. Exactly. And it's very much known who is and who isn't now because you are asked to wear this thing on your badge saying, yes, I've had my vaccination or no, I have not. Um, soon it's coming down to those who are not vaccinated have to wear N95 masks. So you are going to see who is vaccinated, who is not vaccinated. My fear is that when will patients say, I don't want that nurse taking care of me because they aren't wearing this or they don't have that. When I might be just as good as or a better nurse maybe than this, you know, other person. Just so, yeah, it's disheartening. It comes down to a personal decision that you have to make based on your individual health because health is not a one size fits all. And if you try to make any medical procedure, any health practice, a one size fits all, you're going to inevitably cause harm to other people, right? I mean, th th this is where you, Dustin and I have had a, a major problem with this th this entire time because up until, well, call it, let's just call it December of 2020, there was no vaccine in existence. You know, all the frontline workers worked their asses off to save save lives, you two included. And then all of a sudden, now that there's this, I call it a witch's brew, and we'll talk about some of the side effects that they actually have to tell you about um, here in a moment, but they have this witch's brew now that, okay, even though you lasted and survived the last 18 months without a vaccine, well, at that time, it would have been a year without a vaccine, you're no longer good anymore, um, just simply because you don't want to inject this into your body. I'll tell you guys a, a personal story real quick. I've alluded to it on this show a couple times. So I have a heart condition that I have a pacemaker for, and it's called long QT. Are you guys familiar with that? Uh, you're familiar with the term torsades? That's me. Is that scary in your profession? When you see an EKG twist? Yeah, that's me. So to think that I'm going to go put something in my body that's going to cause other heart conditions, you, you've got to be insane. And when I called my electrophysiologist, he tells, doesn't call me directly, tells the, the RN that called me back, he needs to just go get vaccinated. I lost every bit of respect I had for that doctor because at this level, not even a cardiologist, an electrophysiologist, I would think he would take a little bit more care as to what he's telling his patients. Would you guys not agree with that? Yeah, I think we have, we, the medical professionals, the medical field, have obsessed about some of the side effects and problems that COVID causes. And for sure, COVID can be bad. It can be bad in, statistically speaking, when you look purely at the data, it's worse in people with comorbidities, it's worse in people with obesity, and it's worse in old elderly it's just that's the data and you mm -hmm. can't argue that. I think early on and maybe even currently part of what we're seeing um, with COVID and what it does to the body and people's bodies is possibly related to what we're doing to treat it. That would be really probably frowned upon, but that would be my thought process, especially early on, early intubation. 
okay. um, putting every patient on a ventilator. Part of the reason patients were put on vents at that point in time is to try to create a closed system so we didn't expose more people to COVID because we didn't know how it spread then. Which but makes can, sense. Sure. Early but then, on. Early on, but then when you realize that you don't need to vent all these patients and it's a completely different process than a normal typical pneumonia, you've got to change your, your methodology. And truly, aside from maybe that first week or two, I can't imagine being a healthcare provider on the outpatient scheme of, of things and say, just go home, take Tylenol and hydrate and do your best. I, I can't imagine not trying to provide some kind of early treatment therapeutics. Shoot. I mean, you get a rhinovirus and you're going to support yourself somehow with some kind of medication at home to alleviate symptoms. And yet all really until weeks ago, when I looked on the CDC's, I think, website on recommendations for outpatient treatment, Tylenol, hydration, quarantine, still. I got a question on that. So Tylenol is not an anti-inflammatory. No. Ibuprofen is. Yes. If the spike protein in COVID causes an inflammation response, an inflammatory response, why would they not suggest ibuprofen or some other type of anti-inflammatory? Is there a particular reason? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if it's maybe what it does secondary in your body. I know ibuprofen can cause problems with your liver, and it's it's met- metabolized in the liver. Liver and Tylenol is less metabolized by the liver, so I don't know if it's a metabolism. I'm not really sure. I, I don't but know. I, just, we I'm bought a bunch curious. of Tylenol early on too because we had ibuprofen, and right. I don't know. I haven't looked. I was just it. curious because yeah. I would think an, if the if Part of the issue with the lungs is an inflammatory response. Wouldn't you want to maybe do some sort of anti-inflammatory thing to contradict that? So a steroid, That's why steroids are in the line of, so if you look at any protocol for treatment, outpatient and early treatment, FLCCC is the protocol that I've followed actually for myself having COVID just the last week. And they steroids is at the top of their treatment that they would recommend. And, And so early on, they were not recommending um, steroids at all. I remember one of my co-physicians was actually reamed up one side and down the other for asking for a steroid to be injected into a mom with COVID for the baby because we do that. That's that's a typical sure. early treatment um, to help with, with the baby's outcomes. And a doctor completely blasted her and said, we will kill patients if we give them steroids. So early on, we didn't even use steroids regularly for fear that because when you have an infection and you give a steroid, you weaken the immune system and you can oh, okay. have, gotcha. have worse outcomes. Well, that can make, okay. Yes. But now they give steroids as early treatment, high dose steroids in inpatient settings. And I think even outpatient, they would prescribe steroids to patients for the inflammatory process. So we've come a ways, but still, so we're so obsessed with what this disease does to the body that I, I don't think that we've taken two seconds to look at what the vaccine can do. Because when you say the word vaccine, it's surrounded by this safety buffer. It's And I've experienced this um, with patients kind of recently in, in the NICU. And I have some friends and know some people who have chosen not to vaccinate their kids or to choose the vaccine schedule that they have their kids getting vaccinated on for their own reasons. Most of them are super well-educated on the why, Mm -hmm. but you get a lot of judgment. I feel like this current crisis that we're in with the vaccine 
has been set up like almost masterfully like a drama because I don't know, 10, 15 years ago when I can't remember what physician came out and, and pub- published a study saying that vaccines cause autism. And then he was completely discredited, discredited and the study was discredited. Mm-hmm. From that point on, it's like the word vaccine was equivalent to safe and effective. It's almost a religion. You know, the funny thing you say, safe and effective. Anybody here listen to No Agenda? I know he does. No Agenda is another podcast that we just, him and I are avid listeners. But in the, in the 80s, when Reagan was president, we were all kids. Some of you might not have even been born yet, you too. So the pharmaceutical industry basically lobbied the federal government to build a safety net, so to speak, so that they could not be held liable for injury due to vaccines. And in the statement to Congress or whatever it was, they said, and the reason for it was they, the pharmaceutical industry was having a hell of a time getting insurance coverage because the insurers didn't want to be responsible to pay out all these injuries. And so Ronald Reagan said, you know, well, why don't you make your vaccines more safe? That's kind of the common sense. And their response was, vaccines are inherently unsafe. It's something to that effect. Did you recall that from No Agenda? Yeah, the other day? I heard that. Yeah, it was something like, oh, no, no, vaccines are unavoidably unsafe. Right. That's what they said. So now we fast forward to today, and it's, well, now we're vaccinating kids from 5 to 11 years old just because. For those of you that follow Candace Owens, she put out a post today actually on Twitter that she got a call from her pediatrician. She, just, she has a newborn, uh, maybe six months old. And they're soliciting pediatric offices to get babies enrolled in studies to now vaccinate six months and up. That's frightening to me. I don't know what you guys think about that. But for me, I'm looking at that going, if we don't have the data on adults, adults, why are we messing with children? Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, we were giving Zantac to babies, okay, years ago. That's Zan- a heartburn medication, yep, right? We were giving Zantac. Was that for colic? Uh, just for acid reflux. They get reflux too. Okay. So now you get all of these things that say, oh, it causes cancer. How many years ago? And we were giving it to everybody. Mm-hmm. So why should this be any different? Why, right. why are we going to say, okay, we have no idea what this is going to do. We do evidence-based research. We do evidence-based studies. That's how something gets credibility. Mm-hmm. This is not that thing right now. Right. And I think that it will be rushing. It will be way too soon. And personally, my kids not going to get it. Mm-hmm. I am not willing to negotiate their future because, you know, you have the side effects causes possible infertility. I want to be a grandma if my kids will let me. You know, I don't want to say, hey, you know what? We chose to fall into this category years ago. This is what we chose for you. Now you're dealing with the consequences. It's just not fair. Did you guys notice a spike in admissions when the vaccines rolled out? Like, did you hear your coworkers, anybody talking about? Because I know that the big narrative around hospitals was once people started getting fired and everything else, they're having to shut down floors of the ICU and stuff like that. So really what it is, it's not necessarily that the hospital is overwhelmed in and of itself. It's that there's not enough staff to patient ratio and all that kind of stuff. But I just didn't know if maybe you guys heard in some of your conversations or anything, you know, about God, good Lord, you know, we're it's way worse this week or last week. You know what I mean? After the vaccines got rolled out. 
I don't think so. I think I, I feel like I remember back in early 2020, March, April, May, maybe, you know, when we had our big first spike here in Colorado, that maybe the max number of vents that were run up in the ICU was maybe 30. And I think we have like 45 or something like that. I think as of recently, our max vent, because we are managing it differently, I think as part of it is maybe 20. Mm -hmm. Um, You guys aren't going to the vent immediately. No, exactly. We have not had to go to like plan B's that we've had in, in our hospital setting for a while now. There's been threat threats of it, but those threats are more related to uh, not bed capacity, like physical bed capacity. It's the ability to have the number of people to care for. So it's, it's more of your staff to patient ratio. I, within the last few months, there's been conversations about that. Um, I know that I was in Texas at the peak or the, the start of their last big boom in July, August. And it was hilarious that I was there during that time. Everybody, I think, thought I was going to bring COVID back, the Delta variant. Now, were you working? No, I was visiting family. Okay. And I kept an eye on the hospital system down there in Houston. The Houston Medical Center published their bed status, um, and they had this nice schematic that showed how many patients were COVID patients and what phase they were in. And the entire time I watched them through August because everybody, as soon as I came back to Colorado, said Texas was on fire because nobody was vaccinated and everybody in the hospital system is COVID and COVID's overrunning the hospital systems in Texas and maybe for a week, but never was the Texas Medical Center, which I think is one of the largest medical centers in the in the country, mm-hmm. um, so overwhelmed with COVID patients. I think the max number of COVID patients filling their beds were 30 to 40 percent at any given time. So I just think we have gotten such mis- mixed messages and untruthful information about everything, but we've completely obsessed about the ending the pandemic, the vaccine being the best thing that we have to end the pandemic. But then that continues to shift. You know, early on, it was herd immunity was the big thing that was pushed into 70%. Right. 70, then it became 80. Now it's a hundred percent, I guess we need a hundred percent either vaccinated or with previous infection, although they don't really, but they don't document the previous they infection. Don't, they don't really. And that doesn't make any sense because there's so many studies supporting previous infection as mm-hmm. more effective than vaccinated uh, immunity. There was a study out of, was it Israel? That said, if you had a prior infection, you were 27 times, you had 27 times the antibody response or immune response than somebody that was vaccinated. But then, of course, the powers that be came in and tried to destroy that study entirely. And from an outside perspective looking in, I I, I find it rather ridiculous that you have uh, what used to be very reputable doctors in Peter McCullough down at Baylor, was at Baylor. Um, He's a teaching physician, cardiologist. You know, he testified in front of Congress numerous times. You have Dr. Pierre Corey that's been on Rogan's podcast numerous times. You know, uh, Dr. Tenpenny, she was a world-renowned OB that was on Oprah Winfrey's show numerous times. You have all these doctors now that are being discredited at nauseam because they're not going along with this narrative of you can only do a vaccine. And we've covered this before, and I already know the answer, but what is your interpretation as to the reason why repurposed drugs are so frowned upon for this disease. 
And here's what I mean by that. So my experience with the repurposed drugs, so I told you my heart condition. When I was 12 years old, they had no idea what this heart condition was in 1992. They diagnosed me with epilepsy. So I'd been on seizure medication from 92 until 2014. Well, a lot of epilepsy medication is... Uh, they're also antipsychotics. So, for example, one of the drugs that I had for, for the quote-unquote epilepsy was a drug that they used to use for bipolar treatment, repurposed drugs, off-label drugs. Why, with COVID, is it not possible, not allowed? It's, it's heresy to even talk about the use of repurposed drugs, such as you know, the, the bad word, ivermectin, or the other bad Trump word, hydroxychloroquine. Now, I can't take hydroxychloroquine because it elongates the QT interval. Okay, fine. And I know the answer. But what is your interpretation of why those are so frowned upon? If we're trying to end the pandemic, why not throw everything in the kitchen sink at this thing to say, okay, we're going to do everything we can to get rid of it? Money. <laughs> Money and power. Gotcha. So are you too aware that there's a federal statute here in the U.S. that a pharmaceutical company cannot get emergency use authorization for a medication for a pharmaceutical if there are other treatments that work currently available? Yes. So in our line of work, every drug that we give patients is a repurposed drug. There's Surfactant might be the only medication or therapeutic that is given to neonates that is designed for neonates. Every drug that we give, every antibiotic we give is an adult antibiotic that's repurposed for neonates. Caffeine is something we give to neonates. Everything. I mean, nothing is designed for a neonate. They're all repurposed. So I, I don't understand. I've never even heard or thought to, for two seconds about repurposed drugs. I mean, I don't take much in the way of medications. Fortunately, my family and I have been pretty healthy overall. We take a lot of supplements and, and nutraceuticals, vitamins. vitamins and things like that. But as far as medications, I haven't had a whole lot of experience with meds, period. But I think, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why we're so all in on the vaccine as the only solution here. Because when, before warp speed in December of 2020, you had reputable doctors, as you've cited, publishing data, a lot of data on early treatment plans, coupling vaccines in those plans. McCullough is somebody you mentioned, and he has this nice schematic that he made that vaccines are part of ending the pandemic, but also early treatment and, and the way that you treat it um, early on. Um, and they were published, they were peer reviewed, they were accepted and, and pushed through journals. And then all of a sudden the vaccine came and you didn't hear anything about those. It was like the vaccine came and was going to save everything. And I think the vaccine has a time and a place. I have encouraged certain family members to get the vaccine, you know, but I do think it should be a choice because there's a risk associated with it, whether we want to recognize it or not. Well, there's a risk associated with any medication or any vaccine out there. And so this narrative of it's completely safe, it's completely harmless, you cannot say that about any medication that's out there. You cannot say that about Tylenol. You can't say that about water. Well, exactly. You can't. You can overdose on water and die. Yes. Yeah. Plenty of people have OD'd on water at music festivals because they drink too much water because they're high on Molly or they're rolling on Molly or whatever. Like, I don't know the correct terms here. Dustin could probably help me out with that, given his past experience in law enforcement. But yeah, you're, you're right. Like you could you could OD on drinking too much water. And I think that we're 
basing everything off of, we are all different. We are all different. We're all going to react to something in a different mannerism. One medication that's good for you isn't good for me. You know, we just don't know. And to say that we can't use these certain medications, that they should be, like Liz said, we use medications in neonates all the time and it's accepted. Why now are we saying, oh, no, 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 we can't give this to treat COVID? That's the big question. The, the, the big one now is ivermectin, right? What, in your professional opinions, do you think the biggest issue with ivermectin is? Do you think that there's a fear that the powers that be know it works early in early treatment, right? Before somebody is super sick, do you honestly think that there's this fear that they know it works and they don't want the public to know it works because of a money situation like you mentioned? Or does it really not work? I feel like, too, to go through drugs. So when you first invent a drug and it goes to the pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies, you have to have a patent on that drug. So, and this is just my belief, that they will not make any money the powers of be pharmaceutical companies will not make any money off of ivermectin because it already exists. So they want to take something else and label it like they invented it to keep that 14 year patent on it. So then they sell that. Right. So Pfizer's coming out with their new pill. I call it Pfizer-mectin. You know, Merck makes ivermectin, but Merck has come out and said, well, it doesn't work. So now they have their own pill. I call it Merck-mectin. They probably put a little sodium in it and said, hey, it's different. It's it's like comernity with, you know, the approved vaccine versus the original vaccine. That's the same. What would what, they say, Dustin? It's the same but slightly different. Right. Yeah, same but slightly different. That's what the actual approval said from the FDA. I don't know if you guys read that, but total joke. But it's kind of like that. Like they already had the technology, but okay, we, we want to make money on it. So instead of charging five bucks a pill, we're going to charge $800 a pill. Am I wrong? It's really hard not to look at it from that perspective. I think, as I said, I feel like this whole 2020, 2021 has been kind of a, a groomed situation. I think we have, one, felt vaccines are the best invention in medicine since penicillin. Um, and by the way, penicillin, just so you know, is a, it's a veterinary medication, right? Yeah. <laughs> Cause it's used by vets. Yes, it is. Um, just saying we have, we have taken vaccines and we have made them kind of the cornerstone of preventative medicine, I think in healthcare. And I think vaccines have done wonderful things. I think it has it helped do wonderful things. I'll say that. I think that it's hard when you have somebody who really has well-researched the history of vaccines and diseases and disease processes, and they bring their evidence to the table, which many of them do a lot of research. It's sometimes really hard to argue with them when they're presenting their side of the thing of things. But I think we just have this magical thinking that vaccines are going to be um, the thing that ends all disease for humans Number one. Number two, I think we don't think humans should get sick ever. I think we think humans should always be well, and kids, by extension, our children, should never have to experience illness, which when I learned in nursing school 15 years ago, and I know several physicians that have practiced medicine for years now, 15, mm -hmm. 20 years, learned the same thing. Kids are supposed to get four to six colds every year. That is how they develop immunity 
um, tour. You put, you put a two-year-old in daycare. You're going to have. Oh, trust me. Yes. We've been dealing with it. I, w- I had to be on 30 days of antibiotics last year for some super bug. Yes. I sure the hell hadn't been exposed yeah. to it. Yeah. That's the innate immunity that our bodies were designed to develop. Right. But we, I think, are forgo- foregoing that in the name of vaccines in current day. And I think we've also accepted the fact that vaccines can be mandated because of the flu vaccine and how we have. But that's not mandated. Kind of. It's kind of is, kind of isn't. Um, It was kind of sneaky. I remember not having to get flu vaccines when I first started in in healthcare. You know, we talked about it. You got it if you went and happened to get it. It was not rolled out in our hospital setting. But then, I don't know, five, six years ago. Well, actually, it was if you didn't get the flu vaccine, you were to wear a mask. And so that's what you did. If you didn't have your flu vaccine, you wore a mask. For flu season. For flu season only. Um, But last year. Because the virus knows it has a season. Yeah. So last year. Just making sure. When all of COVID popped up, all of a sudden it was you now, if you would like to keep your job. So this, the COVID isn't new to us now. It's if you want to keep your job, you also need to have the flu vaccine last year. So I don't know if it was a priming for us to say that now, okay, we have this new vaccine against COVID. You must take it to keep your job. But yeah, it was a situation where, okay, you just wear a mask and you'll be fine and you don't need it. But now it is, you need it to keep your job. But even that only came about in, I think, 2010, 11, 12, somewhere in there. Um, The, you have to wear a mask if you don't get a flu vaccine. If you look at the flu uh, trends over the last eight to 10 years, it's gone steadily up. So I don't know. I mean, I haven't. Do you guys believe the fact that there was no flu last year? No. No. Okay. Just, no. You, got, you, you both are the medical experts. I'm just curious because there are some people out there that literally think that face masks cured the flu and only COVID existed. It's laughable. Okay. I'm just. I, I'm, I, I'm not a virologist. Brianna's sure. not a bri- virologist. No. We're not immunologists. We're not experts in this I don't think type you of need medicine. To be. No, no, but. It's, it's scary where it's going though. Like it, I've, you can have seen, you can see the progression over the years of what's led to this right now. And you know, the other thing about the vaccine is we were told it was 95% effective against transmission, against getting COVID. And, and we accepted that. And that sounded great in the clinical trials that were run from Pfizer um, which I think were 40,000 people. And I can't remember exactly how many cases of COVID. I think in, even in the adult trials, there weren't any cases of death early on in the trial, either side, whether they got COVID with the vaccine or not. So, okay. But then it was so easy for them to come out and be able to just say that it's not, it's not transmission that it prevents. It's severe hospitaliz- or severe disease, hospitalization, and death. So we shifted in a very short time frame being of what we were sold on for this vaccine. And, and we've just accepted it and been okay with it. And now they're wanting to do the same thing with our kids. And I just, I can't, what, what else don't we know? What else, what else don't we know? I was going to say, you don't have to be a virologist or a doctor to have a doctorate in common sense, right? We used to say it all the time in the police department, man. If it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck, right? And so... Yeah, I agree with you. That's 
So I don't have any real justified reason to not take the vaccine, to be totally honest with both of you. I mean, I'm a fairly healthy male. I have a little bit of heart disease in my family tree, so I don't know if that could kick up. Who knows, right? But my biggest thing is exactly what you just said. When information changes and nobody asks any questions about it and we just accept it because of your title, I think that we're going down a very scary road in letting people dictate exactly how we're going to live our lives and what we're going to be doing. And that becomes a control issue. And I know you guys have both talked about the money and the control side of things. But, you know, for people out there, I mean, we say it all the time. We don't say don't go get vaccinated. We're, we're very big proponents about if you need it, go get it. If you feel like you need to do it or you're going to be around people that you're a bigger threat to them or anything like those situations, like you should probably go get that. Yeah, you need to make the best decision for you. But in terms of these mandates, you know, that you guys have been you guys have been hampered with as well, you know, these are just totally unconstitutional for something that we like you guys referenced that you guys kind of answered a lot of my questions just through us talking, but my natural immunity is 27% better than what you're getting in these vaccines. And mainly you guys can explain more on this if you want to, but you know, with your B and your T cells and the memory and you know, all this other stuff that's going on. It's very simple to me because I'm not in the medical field like you guys. I don't go get the vaccine because I was a street patrol officer during swine flu. I was a street patrol officer during H1N1. And I didn't have anything forced on me then. Nobody told me to wear a mask, take any precautions. It was almost like nobody cared. And it was like nobody even gave it any weight. And so when I had that situation and then I compare it to this situation over here now, it's like, okay, well, why are these two things so, why are they trying to tell me they're so different when they're so similar? I got a couple of questions on the vaccine, and then I want to go into some of your guys' education stuff. So we have th- three brands of vaccine, right? We have Moderna, Pfizer, J&J here in the U.S. Two of them are mRNA. The other one's a viral vector. The viral vector is the J&J. The mRNA vaccine, this is the first of its kind that's ever been widely used in mass. Okay. Viral vector has been around since I think the late seventies when I did my research. Why is it that only Pfizer has came up for approval with the FDA and Moderna and J and J has not. I mean, we can speculate, but when you guys walked in today, I showed you the informational packet. What do you call this when you get a, a medication or you take a vaccine and they have to give you the informational sheet? What is that that they call it? It's just the medication insert. Okay. It's usually so, on paper, like onion thin paper, and you fold mm-hmm. it out and it's in tiny print is yeah. usually what it looks like. Yeah. So up until now, and even now, if you go and get your vaccine, like you said, you were never given this at your healthcare provider. The reason until now you've never been given this is because there's a one blank page in the little uh, bottle that when opened, it says this page intentionally left blank. So technically you cannot give informed consent when you don't know what they're informing you about, right? It is also illegal, illegal in the U.S. to give informed consent under duress, meaning if you are coerced in any way, to have a medical treatment, you cannot legally give informed consent. So for somebody to say you have to take this vaccine in order to keep your job, I call it blackmail, you call it coercion, is what it is. You brought up a point that we don't know what this is going to do to our children. 
in the Comirnaty version of the quote-unquote approved vaccine, this came out just last week from the FDA. This is the information sheet that I had you guys take a look at. 20 pages. Anybody can go to the FDA.gov and download it. But under pediatric use, the safety and effectiveness of Comirnaty in individuals younger than 16 years of age have not been established. It says it right there in black and white. How are they getting away with saying this is safe and effective for 5 to 11-year-olds? when this clearly contradicts what they say. So the Pfizer trial for children includes 2,200 kids. They had, I think, and I can't be quoted because I haven't read this in some time, but I think there were 19 positive cases of COVID, 13 in the unvaccinated arm of the study and six in the vaccinated arm of the study. I believe listening to different experts the majority of what they were measuring was the antibody response that these kids had to the dose that they were given of the Pfizer vaccine. There were zero deaths in the study, and there were zero hospitalizations in either arm of the study. And at the point that they submitted their information to the FDA, they had a month, maybe two months worth of data that they were reflecting on for this very quick study of 2,200 pediatric patients, 5 to 11. So that's the data that they are using to say this is safe for children. But it's not in the primary study that this vaccine information sheet is, is representing. Right. I think what they did was they're legally bound to put that information sheet because it's quote unquote approved now. But the fact of the matter is how many of your patients are going to read that? Not many. We give VIS forms on all vaccines, and I would say nobody um, probably reads them. They just, it checks, check marks our box to say that we did our due diligence to obtain appropriate consent. Well, anytime I go to a pharmacy and I have to get a medication filled, they give me the informational sheet. The pharmacist says, Do you want to read it before you take it? I always say, No, I'm in a hurry. I got to go. That's pretty much what people are going to do with this. Unless you read it and you're like, holy hell, that, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. I think um, I just read a study out of Children's Hospital here in Colorado, actually, of a pediatric population and what they saw through maybe December or January numbers-wise. And I know we like to say that Delta is worse. And you have this nice little paper here that actually says it's not worse. It's just more, more infectious. But at least pre-Delta, they had tested over 14,000 kids for coronavirus for concerns for symptoms and signs. And of the 14,000 plus kids that they tested, I think there were somewhere around 450 positive cases. Of the 450 positive cases that they had, had some had symptoms and some didn't, 85 of the 450-ish were hospitalized with COVID. Um, of the 85, 35 needed respiratory support. Of the 35, all but four or five in the study that they were looking at, and this is their total numbers at Children's Hospital, needed low-flow nasal cannula, and the average length of stay was three days. There were two kids that required ventilation and one kid that died at Children's Hospital, and this was through December or January, I can't remember. But this is the number that we're dealing with. That's less infective and less scary than a, a flu season mm -hmm. is for children. Well, I'll give you some other numbers, and I don't want to get into this on, on this particular episode because this goes down a 
really weird rabbit hole, but there was a patent <clears throat> that was approved August 31st of 2021. And I can send you guys the actual patent. It's a 53-page document. I sent it to you, but you almost have to be a scientist or a doctor to figure out what's what. But frightening patent. But at the beginning of the patent, when they talk about the summary of why this uh, technology is needed, and it's a, it's, it's a human tracking technology is what's been patented by Pfizer. I could send it to you. It's frightening. But anyway, the, at the beginning where they do the introduction, it talks about statistics worldwide of how many people have been infected with COVID. And this was up until August, I think it was August 20th of 2020. Okay, so a year and three months ago. And so they, they, in this patent, they list the total number of infections worldwide, and then they list the total number of deaths worldwide from COVID. And so I'm a numbers guy. That's what I do for a living. And I'm like, well, huh, why don't I just divide the deaths into the total infection number to see what the mortality rate is worldwide? Anybody want to take a guess as to what the mortality rate is with COVID worldwide? I hear people quoting less than 1%, but for the U.S. data, I know it's been steady around 1.6%, it seems like. But Okay, so this was as of August of 2020, before any vaccine, before any new information come out as to how to treat COVID, right? 0.03%. Now, this isn't a U.S. patent document that I think I would trust that number more than any other media outlet, given that that's a legal document. Agreed. 0.03% worldwide. We're treating this thing like it's the movie fucking Contagion, and it's not. Okay. So you guys, you, you both have to do continuing education. Yeah. Every year. Who sponsors your continuing education? Is it like you guys? And I, I don't know this, and I'm not, this is not a trick question. I'm just curious. Like, is it pharmaceutical companies? Is it, you know, PPE companies? Like, are there companies that support you in your, your profession that actually sponsors this continuing education? Because I know in my world, you know, I'm a lender, and I do continuing education for real estate brokers. So it wouldn't be unheard of. So we seek out our own and we do like CEUs, um, continuing education credits. And mm -hmm. so we seek those out and we can do pretty much any avenue that we seek out. You know, you have your policies that you get through your facility and you have to follow those. Yes. And that's continuing education for that through your hospital clinic, whatever. But we have a majority of the control over those CEUs who sponsors those. Not quite sure. I just okay. go on a list of qualifying ones and I pick them and, you know, and sure. I don't even think though in the state of Colorado that we actually are designated that we have to do CEUs. I know for our facility, that's what we have to do. But for the state of Colorado, you really don't have to do, you just pay your however much money and you renew your license every year. So it's gotcha. not even required. Gotcha. I was just curious because I it wouldn't surprise me if you would have told me the pharmaceutical industry sponsors your C, your your continuing education. I mean, to me, it would make sense. In our world, we get some of our education like through formula companies. Um, they will kind of sponsor, and sometimes they'll host education forums and things sure. like that. We give very few medications to our babies. We do vaccinate our babies. Well, and so anybody listening thinks that I'm like this big anti-vaxxer. My son's vaccinated. I mean, he's pretty much gotten all of his vaccines, other than obviously he will not get this. But those ones, I feel, were studied for the appropriate amount of time. And 
I've said it and I'll repeat it, that this is just too fast, Mm -hmm. too fast for comfort. I was going to say, I think that statistically speaking, having a reaction to this vaccine even is probably very statistically low. I mean, I'll, I'll say that. I think when you look at if you can find real data on things, it, it's probably a very low risk. Mm-hmm. However, that being said, you know, we all go to our anecdotal evidence and the people we know and what we've seen in real life because it's sometimes hard to find real data. And so because yeah, where do you trust getting that information? Right. So I know personally a minimum of three people who've had more than just an achy injection site laid up in their bed for a day reaction to the vaccine. Mm-hmm. I could probably point to a handful more that have, I think, probably had some kind of reaction to a vaccine, but nobody will ever admit it, admit that or point I, to that as the culprit. I find what's interesting right now and, and uh, people that are like so pro vaccine, so it's the be all end all. If they had an adverse event, they wouldn't correlate it to the vaccine. They would try to find another reason why they're having it. And it's like, you don't need to make shit up. Like if nothing else changed other than this, maybe this caused it. And, but that's the frightening thing. You guys are like this. So we just got done recording one episode. And so I had our Twitter page up already. One of the very first things on here, you guys ready for this? Is it on our, is it on our feed? No, it's just on, on, it was something that was on there. Don't fire me up here, man. Delta plus symptomless variant driving COVID back to January levels. What? Symptomless. <laughs> I'm just fucking, dude, look at it. It's right there. Right there. Delta plus. Wouldn't, symptoms, sy- wouldn't symptomless mean it's not a disease? <laughs> the funniest part about this is, dude, people are going to get scared of this shit. <laughs> like, think about it. People are going to be at their house and they're going to be like, hey, bro. Hey, hey. You guys, I know you may not have symptoms, but you have COVID, just in case you didn't know. And we're going to test all of you before you come into my <laughs> house. <laughs> this can is just silly. It's just silly at this point, bro. Like, it's like, okay, if you don't, let me, let me just, last thing on this, last thing, and I'll let it, I'll, I'll drop it. If you don't have any symptoms, how the fuck do you know you got COVID? Because you're not going to go get a test. I have never got a test this entire time. So if I don't have any symptoms, what does anybody, what does that make anybody think that I'm going to go get a goddamn test? You guys want to hear a funny story about <laughs> the one time I got tested last year. So I told you last year before we came on this thing, my son, we put him in daycare in August and, you know, putting a one year old in daycare, it's like open the Petri dish up, right? It's disgusting. And so me and my wife both got sick. He got sick and mine, I couldn't kick it. And I've got a pretty healthy immune system. I, it, this would not go away. So I go to the doctor and my wife a week before got diagnosed with bronchitis. So bronchitis is not contagious. Your body develops it from another sinus infection, whatever. Okay. Secondary. Yeah. yeah. So I go and I had the same symptoms. So I go to the, the primary care doc and I won't say the company, probably the same one you guys work for. So the, the, the nurse person comes out and I don't know, like the person that comes out to like, check your weight and your vitals. What, what is that? An LPN, uh, an MA. Yeah. Yeah. So she comes out and she's not fully beekeepered up, but she's got like her, her paper face mask. And, um, I think she had a face shield in front of her face, uh, rubber glove, short sleeve shirt, no big deal. So she does my vitals, has me set on the table, says, okay, wait here. The doctor's going to come in or it was a NP. I think they came in. So she comes in, no PPE on whatsoever, none. 
does a strep culture, looks in eyes, ears, nose, does the whole exam, says, okay, I think we should do it. I don't think it's COVID, but I think we should do a COVID test. Okay. If you don't think it's COVID, why do it? Well, just roll it out. Fine. She comes back fully beekeepered up after she did all this other stuff. And I'm like, what is that for? Her response to me was, well, I got to protect myself. I'm like, you didn't think that that was appropriate before you stuck the swab in my throat for the strep test? Does that make any sense to professionals? So coming from the medical floor, what I, you know, we would get people from the ED all the time, all the time. And they would say, oh, hey, and by the way, maybe you should run a respiratory panel on them. After they've been coughing in my face, I have had contact with them, nothing. So I always say that my immune system probably is 110% better than any vaccine that you're going to give me because I've had, you know, rhinovirus. I've had flus. I've had all of this. But it's funny how we then say, oh, my gosh, they might have this disease. And now we have to protect ourselves, which you should walk into a room with precautions if you're in this profession. Yes. But sometimes we just don't know where it's going to go. Right. But yeah, it is, it is funny how that then is a post thought. And I am not in your profession, but from a common sense perspective, I would think if I was in this person's shoes, I'd have walked in with all the PPE on and said, Hey, let's first do the COVID test or let's not even do the COVID test. But I'm going to have all the PPE on to do the, the entire exam and then, okay, do the COVID test last, fine, but I'm going to be protected. But for you not, and this is why I'm like, this is all bullshit, because you clearly weren't afraid until you had to go get the nose swabs. Dude, let's just be honest. They're, they're not afraid. These people are not afraid. Are you, like, ba- are you getting- too afraid? Just the first week, maybe a little, but not a lot, just a little like, oh my gosh, what the heck is this going to be? I'm just getting aggravated because they're not really afraid. They know the masks don't work. (laughs) They go and they go out and they put on a stupid little paper mask and they walk around and they go, they're around hundreds and hundreds of people at a time. They're not really scared. You're not scared. You're not scared. Stop trying to tell everybody that, you know, these people try to make everybody else believe this fantasy that they've built in their brain, that this is going to like magically I'm trying not to cuss because I heard that you guys don't like that I cuss too much. So I'm trying not to cuss. <laughs> but on a serious note, like these people are not afraid. Like we keep, we keep making excuses for these people and we keep saying, oh, you know, we should be understanding and we should be, you know, we should take these people's feelings into consideration. Sure. Yeah. Should we be nice to people? Yeah, you should. Every chance you can, if they're a good person, that you should be nice to them. The one thing that I did, I'd never had to do as a police officer was when I went to a critical incident or on a CIT call is the very first thing they tell you is don't play into the fantasy. Don't play into it. It's an altered state of reality. You can't function in that world and their brain and all that kind of stuff. This is the same thing to me. This pushing these different narratives and pushing all of this different misinformation at people and these people just grabbing onto it like it's the Bible. And it's like, you have no structure in your life. That's why you're hanging on to this so hard. Stop marrying yourself to your ideas. I think that also in the beginning, everyone said, oh my gosh, this is a aerosolized vaccine. You have to wear an N95. Everyone was told N95 or nothing. This is aerosolized. We treat TB patients in a negative pressure room. That, you know, is just the standard. So then all of a sudden it changes. And you know what? Now it's just droplet and you can go ahead and wear your regular mask or you can just wear a cloth over your face, whatever, you know, at that time. 
And so I feel like it changed so much that really, if you don't have an active cough and you're not actively sneezing in my face to get droplets anywhere near me or anything, I shouldn't care. It's kind of my stance. It's kind of like somebody told me this the other day, coughing in public at like a restaurant now is the equivalent of standing in, in traffic. So I told my kids, we maybe too much, but we went to the dentist and I was not canceling those dentist appointments because we waited and waited. They <laughs> had a little cough. So I told them, I said, just swallow your cough because we're not, not going to this dentist appointment. It's, right. it's like, and then my son got COVID in August and we were sitting down in a restaurant. He had a little cold. That's what I, I said, that's just a little cold. So as we're sitting in the restaurant and I said, Hey, why aren't you eating your food? And he goes, mom, I can't taste it. And I was like, that is like saying bomb in an airport right now. Like, do not say that out loud. Shut and up. we're going to go. Shut up, we're leaving. Shut we're up, out of here. Yeah, we're out of here. You're going to get on a no serve list. Exactly. <laughs> I think that what you're saying is absolutely true. I think fear, I think that could be a really great study actually. And I, there's, there was one study, it was 800,000 people or so that looked at the common top comorbidities associated with severe COVID cases and the top two were obesity and anxiety Mm -hmm. in this study that they found. Now, I don't know if anxiety was diagnosed previous to COVID diagnosis or the anxiety came with the COVID diagnosis, but they, whoever did this study looked at, looked at that and, and, and found anxiety to be the top in the top two of Mm -hmm. comorbidities associated with a bad COVID, um, Well, I I equate that very similar to like, you know, like when you start getting a head cold and you can feel it in your nose and then all you can think about is, oh my God, I'm going to get sick. I'm going to get sick. I'm going to get sick. And then guess what? You get sick. You know, when we got COVID in March of this year, March of 21, I was more afraid of getting COVID than getting COVID. Does that make sense? Totally. Like I I was like, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to breathe. I'm not going to be able to, I'm going to have to go to the hospital and come to find out. I've, I've personally have had hangovers worse. Yeah. (laughs) Especially that now that I get older, they like last two, three days and it's terrible. Now I get that most people, there's a lot of people that doesn't work that way. They get extremely ill, but I wonder what you just said. Is it the anxiety of what they're being hammered with every day, every night, 24 seven in the media about how bad it's going to be that they trick themselves into making it worse than it is? Well, and that's what our family has been ridden with it. You know, my husband got it back in last November, Thanksgiving. We're at our lake house. We're having a fun time. And he goes to sit in his favorite chair and he goes, Brianna, this what happened to this chair? It doesn't feel right. I said, are you achy? Yeah. I said, you probably have COVID. So we had to cut it short. We came back home. My biggest fear, because then we all started feeling sick. My biggest fear was going to work and what that would look like for me. So, and I think I've told you this story, Brett, but I went and I called my Oc Health and I said, hey, so my husband has COVID and he just tested positive. He went down to the PD and he got a positive PCR. And then he got a positive uh, rapid test. And they said, no, if you're not showing any symptoms, you can go ahead and come on in. And I said, excuse me? Yeah, no, if you're not. And I, then I was like, I've got all the symptoms. Like you're telling everyone out there, you need to stay in your home for 14 days because you are going to kill everyone around you. And lock your door and, and yeah, have food brought to you under exactly. a slot in the door yeah. like you're a prisoner. But so I went in and I got a test. I was negative. Then I did start feeling crappy. I was like, okay, this is not good. So then I called and they said, okay, well, maybe that first test didn't work. Go get a second test. Okay. So this whole time I'm anxious. 
feeling freaked out because I'm like, is this COVID or am I just dreaming this up in my head? Am I really sick or is this just me? So then second one comes back negative. I call again and they say, oh no, you know what? Now we're going to refer you to your, your doctor because this can't be COVID. This cannot be COVID. Even though I've been exposed, I slept next to my husband the entire time. We did not quarantine from each other. That's just not how our marriage works. Like we, that's not how it works. So then I go in for a third test because my doctor says, oh, well, they didn't wait long enough to test you. And are you sure they went far enough back into your nose and all this stuff? So I go back for a third COVID test, negative. So then I wait and I'm, I just told them flat out. I said, I'm not coming back to work. I still feel awful. So then my quarantine's over. Fast forward to April. I got my kidney levels checked. I said, hey, you know what? Tack on a antibody test. Sure enough, April, November to April, mm. reactive for the- For COVID yeah. antibodies. Yeah, reactive. Yeah. But so, I was told to go to work. So those, so two things on that, the tests are bullshit. We've talked on that numerous occasions. And the administrators were clearly not scared enough to take just the precaution to say, you know what? Probably don't come in if you're, if you're feeling sick. Which tells me that somebody somewhere knows it's not as bad as it's being portrayed. And I don't know if it was per se the feeling sick because they said if you're showing symptoms, but at that point I'm freaking myself out. Right. What is a symptom? What is not? What are you going to consider a symptom? What am I dreaming up in my head? Right. I've been around this man for so long that's been positive for COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, what is real right. to me? Yeah, it made no sense. In all of 2020, I had no COVID tests done in healthcare. No matter what, did you, I mean, you had one obviously cause you thought you had COVID, but they, they never offered to, te- we just didn't get tested. I would think as, as no our ends, they would have tested no. you both like every day when you went into work, just as a precaution. Nope. Never to got like, a test. Hey, we we want to take care of our own. So we're going to test everybody to, Hey, if, if you test positive, like let's give you early treatment to take care of you. No, never yeah. tested. And as Brianna said, if, no matter what your exposure was, if you were not symptomatic, you worked. Wow. And now, if you were symptomatic today, what would happen? I think the same thing. You'd get a test, and if it were negative, you could stay out if you didn't feel good, I guess. That would be your decision to call in sick. Uh, but if you were negative, you'd be cleared to come back to work. Would your vaccination status have anything to do with yes, that? Yes, it does. If you so were like vaccinated, it, you wouldn't have to quarantine. So if, if you felt terrible and you're vaccinated, but your test came back negative, they would basically say, come back. Yes. What if you're unvaccinated? I think there's a longer quarantine period for unvaccinated people now. I think I can't keep them straight. It's all shifted and changed so much. And, it really- and only for COVID. No other illnesses. No, huh? Because nothing exists anymore. No, but now now we have to admit that RSV is back in full swing. RSV is a, is a major problem now, yes. not only in kids, but in adults. And I think we're seeing a lot of co-infections, which, again, just speaking to the doctor of common sense that we should have, we know that RSV devastates children and kills them. But if they have COVID in their system, they'll call it a COVID diagnosis and death if, if by chance that absolutely. It's, it's it, money. It's impossible not to think that. There are books and things published. There's this book called Big Pharma, I think. I have it in my Kindle right now, and I'm slowly working through reading it. But it just talks about how the whole evolution of pharmaceuticals and healthcare and how that evolved over time. 
And it's really, the tentacles run deep, I think, with pharmaceuticals and healthcare. And healthcare has shifted so much and so dramatically. I think that's why we see some of these older physicians trying to speak out on early treatment and trying to speak out on different ways to treat this. And these docs, many of them are not anti-vax and they got their COVID vaccines because they believe in vaccines as well. Mm -hmm. But they practice medicine and they were taught to practice medicine based on the patient and what the patient needs. And that has just shifted over time in To just be healthcare. a prescriber of drugs. It really is sad to say, but I think there's some truth to that. And I think once power was shifted from hospitals, so back in the day, hospitals were run by physicians and physicians were the ones responsible for what happened in the hospital system. Mm-hmm. And that has shifted with with the advent of the HMO and with or uh, insurance companies and everything slowly and surely. And then when Affordable Care Act came about however many years ago, that shifted even further. And so now medicine isn't practiced in the hospitals. It's regulated by agencies. And I, I think that is, to me, the biggest, the saddest thing that is going on and probably responsible for the biggest divide that we're seeing right. with people with this specifically with COVID mm-hmm. is because you have some physicians and providers who still believe that they are in the driver's seat and they went to medical school to actually care for the patient and look at what was going on with the patient and prescribe to the patient what they needed, be it pharmaceuticals or something else, exercise, whatever. But they they treat the patient and then you have new breeds of doctors and, and providers, I think, that come out and we're just told that we're protected if we follow all the policies and all the regulations and push the narrative. And the FDA is the governing body that protects us from any litigation. As long as you go with what they say, then you're good to go. And mm-hmm. it's really, I, I don't fault physicians. I think we need to speak quietly to doctors in our setting. Some of them, I think, see through it and they're frustrated by it and they're confused and they have lots of questions and they don't want to get the booster. They don't understand why we need the booster. What the bo- What's the booster going to do? It's no different than what they got six months ago. And what is that going to mean? Does that mean we're going to have to do this every six months so we don't get COVID? And is it so bad to get COVID? But then you have others who go along with the narrative at all costs. Right. And so I think there's a great divide in medicine um, and in healthcare. And I think, I, I don't know, I don't know where when it will end or how it will end. I think my biggest hesitation with the vaccine is the fact that you have VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. Mm-hmm. And I know you, you showed the insert that now will be included with the vaccine with the information on it. But prior to that, there was an emergency use authorization sheet. It was nine pages long that talked about all COVID vaccines. They were all lumped into one. You could either get mRNA, mRNA, or the Johnson & Johnson. And these are the risks and all the things. On that sheet, and maybe even on that sheet, it says if you have symptoms or an adverse reaction to the vaccine, go to the VAERS reporting system to report that. Call your physician if it warrants it. Go seek medical attention as needed. HTTP colon forward slash forward slash VAERS dot HHS dot gov. So that is a bad word now. You can't even say VAERS and say you have concerns for what's showing up in VAERS. I spent days reading through clotting issues associated with the COVID vaccines and people's reports and stories. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And again, statistically, is it a lot? Probably not. But it's real. And those those reports are real. Some of them are probably bogus. There's probably both in there. But that's where they tell us to report concerns and now they won't listen when people are going to that with concerns 
that are voiced in the VAERS system. I mean, we're at 800,000 plus reports for adverse reactions to this vaccine, to the COVID vaccines. Over 15,000 deaths. Why can't we talk about that? I don't, you can't try to use a system to prove that vaccines are safe. And then when the vaccine that you're trying to push proves that it's not safe for all people, ignore it. To me, you are not using the tracking system. Everything you say is out the door because you're not using the resource you told us to use if there's a problem. Well, we've hammered VAERS on, geez, every vaccine <laughs> episode. Yeah, our we've last done. episode, it was almost like it was almost matching a 20 year period with mm-hmm. just the during the COVID time frame. So if you listen mm-hmm. to that episode, I brought that up. Well, let me ask you both this last question, and I, I think we'll cut it out. We've uh, we're about an hour and a half, so a pretty good conversation. So I thank you for coming in. How, do you still have faith in the medical profession overall, given what you've seen over the last 18 months? That that's a tough question. I know that's a really hard question. Um, I have faith in myself and what I do. Sure, you know I don't. Our team, we're a good team, and I feel like we could get back to that place. Right now, it's scary. Right now, the unknowns are every day. We've lived in an unknown for how many years? Going on two years now that I've had to say, I don't know. I can't tell you, you know, and I, that's a hard one. I I don't trust in being told, you know, for myself and my children, I don't trust in that. So probably no. Right. I think I trust individuals, but maybe not the system as a whole. I think the system is very broken. I think it's been broken for a while. I think I was literally looking at different jobs and things that I could do uh, probably three or four months ago for all the reasons. And um, then my sister got COVID in Texas and texted me and um, said, this is, I went to my doctor and this is what they sent me, sent me prescri- uh, prescription pictures and her meds. And she got ivermectin and she got azithromycin, the Zarlinko protocol. And I kind of had a little restoration in my faith mm-hmm. in medicine because there are people out there who do see through it and, and do want to do good work, I think, and do want to provide good care. And, and health is more than just Um, preventative medicine with vaccinations, it's health. And Mm -hmm. and they look at the whole, there are people out there willing to talk to you and have conversations. They're hard to find, I think. Right now, very hard to find. Yeah, they really are. Um, But, you know, I think the truth will out. And I think maybe, I don't know. I mean, I think it's waiting with bated breath to see what happens with kids. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the next six months will be pivotal to see what happens. There is history of vaccines that have failed and they pull them. The RSV vaccine failed and they pulled it and they admitted, you know, when more people in the study arm were dying from the vaccine than just having RSV without the vaccine, they stopped administering it. So I think... I think with that RSV, there was 52 deaths and they eliminated it. Yeah. Science is so good and and so manipulated right now, I mm-hmm. think. I think that's the problem is we're seeing a, a gross manipulation of data and statistics. And yeah. Well, you mentioned you mentioned something real uh, a little bit ago that you said that uh, hospitals used to be run by physicians and now it's run by agencies. And the question that everybody has to ask themselves is, well, who's funding these agencies? And I can tell you who funds the agencies. It's big pharma. I mean, it, that, that is a fact. They fund the FDA. They fund the CDC. People think, oh, it's the taxpayers. No, it's not. No, I think they have greater than 50% share in the FDA. I th- mm-hmm. And I think that's public knowledge. I think you're right. I, right. I think, um, yeah. And for people to just turn a blind eye 
and not admit to that. I, I think it's just, I think it's a fight of conscious now, conscience now. I don't think it's consciousness. Yeah. I mm-hmm. think it's even no matter what, who cares who funds what we're still going to do this because we believe it's right, whether it's black and white, not right or not. Right. And I just, I don't know. I mean, follow the data, I guess, <laughs> follow the money, I guess is right. probably more accurate. And right. Well, I'll say this and, and I think we'll cut it out, but I completely appreciate everything you guys do and, you know, putting yourselves on the line for the last going on two years, quite honestly. And you deserved every howl at the moon you got last year. And you deserve that still this year without the other bullshit, quite honestly. So, you know, I thank you guys for coming in. Thank you for doing what you do. And, um, absolutely. Thank you guys. Thank you for taking the time and you know, your perspective, you know, you, we, we don't, we can't get perspectives like this without people like you guys coming in. You know, right. so we appreciate it. We know our listeners appreciate it. Our, our listeners obviously resonate with our message most times, most times. But I know. Um, even, with, carried away a little even with that, they, they've been they've been hungry for something like this. You know, just something from real people out, you know, that are getting affected by this stuff. And if there's anything we can ever do to help either one of you, please let us know. Please. We want to be involved with it. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. That's yeah. Yeah. All right. So with that, staying dangerous, everybody. See you.